forgive my long post, but I'm feeling so frustrated and frankly, helpless. The photo of that young father and his little girl that drowned trying to cross the river hit me so hard. I literally cry every time I see it. You see, I came to the United States a few weeks short of my 12th birthday, along with my siblings, four of them at the time, all ranging from eight to three years old. My little sister was not much older than this little girl. Our parents left Nicaragua 18 months before us, seeking a better life. They had their own struggles traveling through three countries to get here, Honduras, Guatemala, New Mexico, but we're fortunate to make it here safely. My siblings and I made it safely as well, but it became my five-month odyssey where we walked miles and miles, stayed at strangers' homes, hotels, went days without food, got deported back to Guatemala twice, and finally crossed the very same river through Brownsville, Texas, where that father and his little girl died. It angers me when I read the comments of ignorant people who say, just come here legally, or they shouldn't put their kids in harm's way. People don't leave their homes, their families, their history, their roots to go through these horrific things. They do it out of necessity, out of desperation. I remember I did not go to the first day of my second grade in Nicaragua because I did not have shoes. I remember there were days, if not weeks, when all we ate were tortillas and beans or beans and potatoes. I remember my mom not having enough money to buy food, much less clothes for her children. I remember a lot of things. While I feel very fortunate to have my life here and I know that God watched over me and my siblings during our journey, I can't help but to feel angry. I'm angry that this happened. I'm angry that it will continue to happen and we turn a blind eye. I'm angry that we have a bigot in office who has no problem letting kids die. I'm angry that people are ignorant when they make these fucking comments. Don't you dare comment on my post if you will say something ignorant. I'm tired of ignorant people. I'm angry and I will always remember this young father and his little girl. This is Ader Nabetter. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. We are back on the air and we're joined by our friend, Perla Garcia. Hi, guys. Hey, Perla. Our fellow public defender. We are going to talk this episode about Perla's journey to the United States as a, as a young person. Perla, we just we read a post that you wrote on uh, social media and it, it stopped me in my tracks. And we just wanted people to hear hear that story and so we're so glad you're here and welcome thank you guys so perla you and i have been colleagues for what 10 years approximately yeah Yeah, i think we we both started as public defenders you were with the independent defender's office the ido yeah back in 2008 yeah 2008 oh my god yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then that's when we we actually went to trial college together in 2008 where they send all the rookie public defenders to um and then when did you get hired with us here at the at the pd's office it was two years after that so 2010 yeah Yeah, i was with ido for a couple of years nice so yeah so you but you but you've been a public defender for your the entirety of your career yes uh, I was just telling you and Avi, you know, I've I've known you for a, a lot for almost a dozen years, mm-hmm. but and we've been Facebook friends and we socialize in court and sometimes outside of court. But then we read your your Facebook posts and I realized that we sometimes don't know each other as well as we think we do, and there's a lot more of more nuance to people's backgrounds and stories. Uh, that inform who they are. So it was, um, you know, we'll get into what you wrote in a minute, but I was, it was, uh, when I read what you wrote, I said, I even commented, I said, your story needs to be shared more widely. Yeah. I didn't necessarily, it didn't like, I didn't connect two and two that we should do so on the podcast until Avi messaged me 
uh, a few days later and said, let's get Perla on yeah. uh, to talk about it. And it was, it was, it's perfect. And here we are. You know, everyone's processing what's happening in our country and what we're doing to people who are attempting to come to our country, how we're treating them. I don't know what the vision would be of what's acceptable a way to treat people, but then what's happening is clearly unacceptable and we're seeing, you know, suffering and we're seeing these tragedies and you're a uh, fellow public defender, fellow parent, you know, processing this uh, photo of the father and his young child attempting to swim uh, to the United States and seeing all that together, having this reaction where you shared this powerful story which stopped us you know and so Perla just tell us um, I mean um, first off what what prompted you to what was your process of saying I'm going to share what you know my life story kind of on in a wide basis and then we we can just talk about it what your story is well thank you guys for bringing me to your podcast I feel so honored I feel like I'm a cool kid (laughs) that's right so I have to tell you, that picture is just so, I mean, every time I think about it, I honestly want to cry because it's so powerful and it's so sad and it's so real. And it did definitely transport me back to when I was coming. Um, but it wasn't so much about me. It was just, there's, you know, we do this work where we see a lot of injustice. We see um, all kinds of, you know, our clients come from all kinds of backgrounds and a lot of them don't have opportunities. And so we empathize and sympathize with them for me personally obviously when I see someone who doesn't speak English or you know is an immigrant from Central America or you know they're just being railroaded by the justice system I feel like I understand them a little bit more on those levels right and so um, with this picture I remember that I was uh, working out and I looked at my phone, you know, you have the new setting and I swiped and I saw the picture and I had to stop working out and I just, oh my God, the tears just started coming down. I went to my house and I saw my sister and she said, what's wrong? And I just showed her the picture, you know, and it hit me for multiple reasons, but it also, I have a two year old son and, you know, just imagining having your child next to you. And then on top of that, crossing the very same river that I crossed, you know, it was just a bunch of emotions at once and I felt sad but I also felt so enraged and then I felt helpless I didn't know like what can I do right I mean what can I possibly do it's just me that's the way I felt and so I came to work the next day and um that picture started coming all over the place and I just was seeing it everywhere and then I started crying again and I just started writing this stuff and I wrote it just so that I could share enough because I felt that it was private to the extent that, you know, not a lot of people know that I came here illegally, you know, I crossed three borders or whatever. I'm not ashamed of that, um, but it's just more people don't understand. And so sometimes in, you know, if you have to explain to people that becomes a little bit more cumbersome, you know, but I was just really um, upset and I wrote it and I just wanted to share enough. I had no idea that, you know, I was going to get a lot of support because I don't feel like it, you know, it's for me. I'm appreciative that people are supportive and that they understand that this is a big problem, that right now the state of this country is, you know, um, just in peril for everyone, especially for immigrants, no matter where you're from. And I think that I felt the support in that at least we can get it out there and we can start 
opening people's minds, you know, and the only other time I ever did that, I did it when I was in college. Um, and I shared my story with my classmates. And I remember at the end of the class, a lot of people were quiet, but they were also thankful. And some of them said, you know, well, I didn't, I had no idea. Thanks so much for sharing your story. And I'm hopeful that at least with my post, that people will be a little bit more open-minded because when you read those comments after the photos, it's just disgusting, you know? Like to me, how do you even, how do you talk about a father and a daughter like that? People don't just want to, you know, come and die. They're doing it for a desperate reason. And I know that personally, you know, and just because I'm a public defender and because I'm thankful, you know, that I can travel and do all those things and be in this country doesn't mean that I forget. But when you have pictures like that come up, it is definitely a reminder that it takes you home. Hmm. No, I'm I'm glad you shared what you shared, um, and I'm really glad that you're here with us to share it some more, because I, you know, one of the things that we have tried to accomplish through this podcast is changing narratives, uh, changing narratives of our clients that we are honored to represent, because so often their humanity is lost in our system that deprives them of their names, deprives them of their their life stories, deprives them of their basic dignity, and we in our work attempt to restore their humanity and tell their stories. And then we're taking it a step further on this podcast by trying to take those narratives outside of the courtroom and then into the public sphere. And in the same way, there is so much misinformation and demonization of immigrant communities and their stories are not told. The fact that you took a step to tell your story, you in turn were telling the story of thousands, I'm imagining, or millions, and being able to put a human face to those experiences as opposed to the ugly face that's often put on to quote unquote those people in that post you talk about your story uh, that you came to the United States as a 12 year old so can you can you kind of give us your background where were you born who were you born to and how did you get here so I was born in Nicaragua I'm the oldest of now six at the time it was five of us my mom also from Nicaragua as well as my dad you know my mom came to the United States I want to say in 1988 1989 so I was around 10 when she left and you know being the oldest in a poor country you don't you have a lot of responsibilities right because your parents are trying to find work and um, so I don't remember my childhood being a childhood like my kids have it here now luckily um, but I remember my mom um, and I talk about my mom mostly because my dad has you know he's not in the picture anymore mm-hmm. But he did um, also come with her, and she had made a decision by herself that she was going to come to the United States. And she said, I need to go find work. Now, looking back, I understand it. But back then, I didn't understand, you know, what it's like to have food because I we had food, but just enough to get by. There were days that we didn't have a lot of food. I remember that all we did was play. We had a big yard, so we did play, and that's kind of how you let time go by, I think, and you don't think about you know, your necessities, really, and your needs that you have as a child. And um, in any case, my mom decided to come to the United States. I later learned that, you know, they had their own struggles coming. They made it safely. They had a couple of, my mom had a couple of siblings already in the States. Um, And so for 18 months, I was without my mom and my dad, and I was helping raise my siblings. Were you with other extended family, or were you just with your siblings? I was with an uh, one of my aunts, we stayed with my aunts and my mom was sending money to her while my mom and dad worked here to save up to send for us. 
So Nicaragua is um, in Central America, you know, and it is next to Honduras, and then there's Guatemala, and then you got to come to Mexico, and then we're in the States, right? So um, we had to cross several countries to get here. But I remember when my mom finally, when we got the news that we were coming, you know, you don't know what that entails. You just know you're coming to the United States. Perla, if you remember, what was the feeling when you got that news? Oh, man. Can you imagine you're 11 years old and you haven't seen your mom for over a year? And I was excited. I was happy. I don't think I was scared. I just remember the excitement that I was going to see my parents again. And my little sister, I was her mom for 18 months. She was two and a half when my mom left. So, you know, we had three brothers in between us. um, So there was a lot of responsibility. And I think I was just looking forward to being a kid again because if you have your parents you don't have to parent your you know your siblings and I was looking forward to joining my family and in my mind what I would watch on tv about what the United States looked like that was what I imagined was it like New York City LA Hollywood absolutely I really remember that I was gonna have a house with steps and a bicycle and it was gonna be something like in New York City and there was gonna be snow outside just what you see in the movies and Mm -hmm. that's what you long for was there a movie you remember from your childhood in Nicaragua of the United States I don't a specific movie but I remember the shows that I would watch and I, I don't know if I'm saying it right because believe it or not I since I came here my early, almost a teenager, I missed some of the shows that other of my colleagues, you know, remember in the 80s. Um, but I think it was Pumpkin Brewster or something yeah, like Pumpkey that. Brewster. Yeah, Pumpkin Brewster. I watched so, that show too. And, you know, we said it with an accent, of course, in <laughs> Spanish. But I would watch that show a lot. And I remember I wanted to be and live like her. Yeah. You mentioned Spanish. So you were a Spanish speaker, right? I mean, you weren't yeah. speaking English in Nicaragua at the time, right. were you? Right. So you're, you're, you're about to venture to this country as a spanish-speaking 11 12 year old girl Mm -hmm. with all these siblings in tow so your mom sends word that that you're going to be making the journey what happens then um so i remember that day i remember that we packed our stuff my aunt got us all ready you know was tearful everyone saying goodbyes i went to say goodbye to my grandma who's now passed you know um since and um you get on buses. I mean, it's a journey that you don't really know what it's going to look like. Um, so you don't, you can't make sense of it until you're going through it. Um, but you get on a bus. You get on a bus. You, um, we had, I think, some sort of visa to Honduras, which is our neighbor country. And you travel by bus for days, you know, and days. And we reached Guatemala. I remember that. I think it took us a couple of days, if not a little longer. Is it just you and your siblings? It was me and my siblings and the other, um, another aunt that was, um, the deal was she gets to come to the United States if she supervises. Yeah. So we did that. We got to Guatemala. Um, I remember I spent a Christmas in Nicaragua. It was our last Christmas. And we left December 29th in 89. I remember that very clearly because when we got to Guatemala, it was right at New Year's and so we stayed in Guatemala for I mean overall it was quite a few months because it took a good month or two before we um, and you were staying in little hotels right so your my mom was sending money for us and you stay in these little hotels in Guatemala where um, a lot of other people are also from other countries waiting to get to the border between Guatemala and Mexico I remember that we stayed there for at least a couple of months when we made the first attempt and the first attempt to cross, there was a couple of guys that came over, picked us up. You get on other buses again. You cross the border. 
Uh, sometimes they hide you in you know different ways to get you to cross. Sometimes you, because we crossed it three times. <laughs> but the first time I remember that they we were on a bus and we made it to the border between Guatemala and Mexico is Tapachulas. So it's a tiny little place. We were there for a couple of weeks in another hotel and you're there with other people from Central America. We finally got on more buses. You're walking through, you know, you name it, like woods and you're crossing rivers in Mexico. You're doing all kinds of stuff because Mexico is a really, really large country. Yeah. It took a lot. I can't remember the specifics, but I know that the first time it was two guys bringing us over along with other people. That was a scary situation because we actually made it. Um, past Mexico City and I remember sitting on a bus and I'm the oldest and I fell asleep and my aunt got my four siblings because the Mexican federales came up on the bus and they started asking people for Mexican papers and we didn't have any so they left and I was I stayed on the bus and I was asleep and thankfully this is one of these ladies that was with us got back on the bus and woke me up and then I was able to get off the bus that time we stayed in Mexico in a jail for a week. Wow. Yes, there's a jail in Mexico. Well, this one specifically where they just hurdle everyone. They get everyone that's going back to Guatemala. It's sort of a detention center. Pretty much what's happening here, frankly. Yeah. We were there for about a week. No communication. Our mom had no idea where we were at. And they separate the men and the women and the children. And they do, they count every day. It's just sort of just like our prisons, you know. And it took about a week before they put us back on a bus back to Guatemala. Were your brothers separated from you at the jail? No, my brothers were little. Uh, My siblings were between eight and three at the time. So they were with us. So it was the men on one side of the jail and the women and the children on another side. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, you know, you've, you've kind of you've been summarizing this journey but obviously i mean it's now spanning the course of several months and through various countries and i'm assuming through various nights where is there ever a moment in time aside from that scenario where you fell asleep on the bus that you were concerned that you were going to be separated from your siblings or was it were you somehow kind of attached at the hip and able to stay together through the whole process I think, thankfully, we were able to stay together, um, mostly because I'm the oldest and my siblings were close to me. Um, Our aunt was obviously also um, helpful in that. While you're coming, you see all kinds of stuff, right? You see um, kids that get separated from their parents or you see people that get lost. Um, I know of so many stories of women and children that get raped as, you know, the as their journeys um, unfolding either by the smugglers themselves or by people that are coming with the smugglers. This is a different topic, but Mexico has a pretty corrupt system as well. And so I do remember many times that a lot of the places we passed, I would see that my aunt or the people that were bringing us over, the smugglers, they would give them money to make sure that they would get us to the next place and to the next place. So everything had to do with money, um, but also those same police officers or um, agents, whatever they were at the time, you know, they were the same people that took all our belongings, you know, the first time, our passports, our bags, um, the money my aunt brought over. So when we were sent back, we had nothing. And my mom had to send again to Guatemala. We, you wait a couple of weeks, you don't risk yourself right away again. And then we tried it again. So you were at this Mexican detention or facility or jail, for lack of a better term, and then you're sent back to Guatemala. Right. You, but you're not from Guatemala. So where are you getting sent in Guatemala? 
I, you know, I think what happens is they send you back to the nearest border, right? Mm. It's kind of what Trump is doing right now. He wants to send everybody back to Mexico and then let them deal with it. Right. So they would send us back to Guatemala. We did have visas, I think, to Guatemala because within Central America, it's easier for you to get a visa. I mean, think about it. You are not in your home country. You're not with your family. Luckily, people speak Spanish. Our Spanish is different. Um, so you're feeling a little bit out of place during those weeks and those months. But you still are just hoping to make it to the States, right? So at that point, we had one, a little bit of an idea or a taste of what it was going to be like. But as a child, again, I think you don't fully understand the big picture. You just know you're making this journey. You're going along with it. You're surviving it, but you don't understand, you know, the possible consequences. Can I take a step back? So you, you mentioned your mom making this, I mean, I, I'll call it a decision, but um, to, to leave Nicaragua and to go to the United States, like from in speaking to her and just looking at her, her story, you, you know, you talk about desperation in your, in your post. What, what drove her to make that type of leap? If you know um, yeah. what was going on in her existence or what was going on in Nicaragua that led her to be so um, desperate, for lack of a better term, to make that leap, to leave the kids and then out and then to have um, you and your siblings uh, go through the journey that you're describing. Yeah. Well, so Nicaragua, um, I was born during the Civil War. Right. And I remember as a little girl and I and I think this definitely contributed to uh, the, my mom's decision, as we call it, um, as a little girl, we um had an embargo for a, a period in Nicaragua, so food was rationed. And I remember that one of the centers uh, where you would go and pick up the food was our next no next door neighbor. So I do remember we were in line, and you know, if you can visualize that, they really did have a list with the members of your family, the number of people, and you know, you I recall whether they give you, you know, they'll give you like a pound of rice or a pound of beans or everything was measured and rationed, you know. So food was scarce, really. And um, food and resources and jobs. And I remember many times my mom, I know this might be a little personal, but I, she had literally two underwears that she wore for a month washed them every day because she couldn't buy clothes you know she um did her best she was a lot of times she was a single mom so she did her best to um, provide for us uh, but that also meant leaving your children alone a lot we were fortunate that we all lived next to in the same place as my other aunts you know um with her children or their children i should say and you know we spend a lot of time playing so when you play you your world is not really, you know, the world as it is. You're playing as a kid. So I remember that. But I remember my mom going through a lot of struggles. And um, I think she became desperate because she needed to feed her children and she needed to provide for her children. And, you know, as a mother, now I understand her, of course, and she and I have these conversations. It is such a heart-wrenching decision to leave your children and leave them to go to another country, to not know when you're going to see them or, you if, know, if, if you'll see them. Yeah. And um, so I know my mom was desperate enough to make that decision um, because she wanted something better for us. She wanted to feed us. Yeah. 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 So you, um, 
are sent back to Guatemala, and then you said a few weeks later there's another attempt. Like how? How? What? What? What happens from there? That second attempt was um, <laughs> that one was a difficult one because it was a dif- different smuggler. Um, this guy, I remember him because he would wear white a lot, and he would wear a white hat. And his name was Carlos. I remember him very well. He got everybody, maybe a group of about 20, 15 to 20 people. We made it to a little hotel in Tapachulas again. Um, and then about two weeks of staying there, he just abandoned everyone. He left. He took people's money and he left. Mm. So um, my mom made a decision at that time that it was time for her to go and get us. So remember, my mom was in the States, Where was also she? undocumented. Where was she? She was here in San Jose. Okay. Yeah, she um, came to L.A. first and then landed in San Jose. So she and my dad were working several jobs, you know, just to save up money, um, lived, of course, at, in low-income housing and worked two to three jobs each just to save enough cash to send for us. I remember that she made the decision to go back, and so... After she said she's coming to meet us in Mexico City, we went to um, another state in Mexico, in Tuxtla Gutierrez, and we took a plane. That was my first time ever being on a plane. Mm. We took a plane from there to Mexico City. (laughs) And as we get on, you know, we're exiting the plane, we literally walked right to where Mexican immigration authorities were. I remember the feeling that when we get off the plane, I'm going to embrace my mom. Mm. And we were excited. And as soon as we get off the plane, there's Mexican immigration. And so that vanished. And we went right back to the same facility where they had us the first time, except this time we were there only for two days. And then they put us back on a bus and you make your journey again to Guatemala. Wow. And this journey to Guatemala, you're making it sound easy. I'm imagining it's not very, it's not a... It's not. I mean, you're on a bus, you know, you're on a bus with another, however number of people can fit on on the bus, you know, and it's depending on where in Mexico you're detained to go back, it can take two, three, four days. And so you're sitting on that bus, you're uncomfortable, um, you know. And you're having, I mean, we have, we all have young kids. And so you're, you're a 12 year old girl with, Oh, you said a two and a half year old sister. My brother at the time was um, just turned eight. Then I had we had a seven year old, and my Jeez. other brother was four, and my sister was three. I have a hard enough time taking my kids, like you know, on a oh, half yeah. an hour drive, no, no. let oh, alone on like week week long journeys right. on buses, on cramped buses in foreign countries. Right. No, I do remember that the hardest thing was, so you can imagine, I talk about my sister a lot, not that I don't love my other siblings, but my sister and I are very close. And I think one of the reasons we're so close is because being young and being little, and I was essentially her mom for, you know, those vital years between two and a half to three and a half or four years old. And she was my child. And so, you know, she was this big chubby kit that I had to carry sometimes you know <laughs> as we're walking we're all taking turns and then imagine two other things that I that you know we don't talk about but I do remember it's when you're at nighttime and you're in some sort of you know in an area where you have to be quiet and the kids it wasn't just my siblings it's other children and you told you're telling them to be quiet and you tell them hush and you're trying to do whatever it takes to be quiet so that you don't get caught you know and that happens constantly even our accent because in Nicaragua our accent is very different than Mexico we couldn't speak because if we spoke then they would know we're not Mexican and then they would ask for our papers just being on edge for 
weeks and weeks and weeks. Could you even, I mean, you're, you're a kid, so maybe sleeping was easier, but I can just imagine being in that state of fear, anxiety, hypervigilance. Were you able to sleep like in these different places, these different hotels, these buses, jails? Yeah. You know, and, and I'll tell you when we get to the, the last attempt we made and how we slept, but, um, we, we slept. I mean, I can't recall now every specific day, but I do remember sometimes you're just exhausted, you know, because we would walk miles. Carrying children is, is exhausting. And you as a child yourself, you know, you're exhausted. And sometimes you wouldn't necessarily eat a lot. So I think the exhaustion just contributes to you yeah. sleeping. And then you get up the next day and you do it the next day again. On the second trip, did you have your aunt with you again? We did. She okay. was with us the whole time. Yes. Um, and on those trips, you also befriend people um, that are also making the same attempt to get here, right? So I remember that we had some people that we were familiar with. Um, in the detention center in Mexico, I'll have to tell you, I remember that it wasn't just people from Central America. The sad thing is I remember meeting this lady who would cry every day, and she swore, and she sounded Mexican to me. She said, I'm from here, and they won't let me call my family because she needed to get her papers and um, we also met a, a, a woman. I remember her. She was from Trinidad and Tobago. And I remember her specifically because she had green eyes. My mom has colored eyes. And every time I look at her, she reminded me of my mom so much. Mm. So I would stare at her, you know, and <laughs> I would just keep that hope that I'm going to see my mom soon. But, yeah, people go through, man, some difficult times as they're making these you know, long journeys. Yeah. So what happened on the third, the third time? Was it uh, months later, weeks later? So the third time I can tell you it was in May. So we left Nicaragua in December by this time we're um, approaching early May. And um, I remember that we got word again, we were going to try um, because the second time my mom went, came back to the States and at that point she made the decision that she wasn't going to be able to risk it anymore. And she decided to go back to Nicaragua. You know, we were all going to go back to Nicaragua because she couldn't handle it anymore. But then they saved up enough money and said they found a smuggler that was well known that he was successful. So um, they sent. And, w and you have to remember this when people are smuggling you is not the same person. They have people that work for them and people that know the different areas. Right. Because you're crossing this whole country and we came from they picked us up at the hotel in Guatemala where we had been staying for months at that point took us again to Tapachulas in a different area we stayed there for two days at a family's house um, they fed us whatnot then the time came to make the journey and um, I remember they put us in the compartment if you can envision the Greyhound buses where the luggage compartment oh my God. is there was a box there and it was around 10 p.m. And they laid me down first because I'm I was the biggest one, the tallest one. And then my siblings were piled up on top of me. So it was a box inside the luggage compartment. And then they would open it throughout the night. And uh, they had a little fan to give us air. So I think the reason when they got us out of the box, it was around six in the morning. The reason we survived is because it was just so hot and we were exhausted i think we passed out so you're in this dark box in a luggage compartment of a bus yes and you know so with your siblings stacked up 
on top of you. Yes. And I remember that that one was the hard one because my little sister would cry <laughs> a lot. You know, she would cry and you just. Oh, my God. I think no. the maternal mom, you know, part of me that was existing in there, was just trying to console them. Um, but then we all passed out because I remember we woke up and we were drenched in sweat. And they got us out. And then you woke up because somebody opened the box? They opened the box. And by the time they opened the box and they opened the compartment area, it was daytime. So Jeez. that I remember. Were there other boxes in the Greyhound? So the other families in the boxes? Or? No, this one was um, specific for us. My aunt played the role of one of the... So the bus drivers were in it too. So the two bus drivers. And she was going to pretend to be the wife of one of the bus drivers. And there was another um, lady with her daughter that was making the journey. The little girl was around, I want to say no more than five. And she was going to be the wife of the other bus driver. Um, so they were able to stay up there. Um, I don't know where the little girl was, honestly, but I know that it was too many of us to, to you know, keep up there. And then obviously if the kids talk and we're talking about the accent and all of these things. Um, I think for them, it just made sense to do it that way. Do you ever have nightmares of being in that box like i mean that it just it sounds so <laughs> terrifying to me you know oddly enough i don't i don't because um i don't know i think this thing just made me very resilient yeah. at the end uh, of it yeah i remember that after that we were able to get back up on the bus um made several stops at some point we made it to mexico city in Mexico City, we were with the sister of the smuggler. I remember that much, that she was definitely uh, uh, related to him. And we stayed there for a few days. Um, the whole thing for me, I just remember as a little kid being um, in awe because I'm looking at these places in Mexico also that I've never been to, very different in my country. And um, we were there for a few days. We get back with more buses, more walking, whatnot. Um, I can't tell you because I don't know Mexico that well how many cities we crossed, but I remember there were a lot of them. And sometimes we were st staying in one city for a night. Other times it was for days. And finally, we made it to the border, um, you know, the crosses or that, yeah, the crosses Brownsville in Matamoros. And we were there for a few days. So we knew, I had learned that when we reached Matamoros, we were going to be close to the States. Okay. So it was exciting for me. And we were there for a few days. Um, when it was time, this pickup came to get us. And we got on the back of this pickup, drove us around to the area where the river is. And you run, you hide, you're ducking. You know, they're telling you to do all these things and you're quiet. Um, it was daytime, I remember that much. And these... Two young, the weirdest thing is these two young kids, two young boys, I probably no more than 14, came and got us um, and they crossed us over on these water tubes um, and they did, you know, made three trips because it was two of us and then another two. But as soon as we set foot on the United States part of it, it was running time and we ran to this other pickup where my dad was there with a friend waiting for us. Oh, wow. So that, you know, it's one of those moments of where you like you're related because you've made it, but then it doesn't end because you still got to continue running before ice comes and gets your INS at the time. So you're in Texas? Brownsville. We crossed through Brownsville. And the river that, that this photo was taken uh, at is the same river that you just described? So the Rio Grande, it's a long river and it, 
it comes, you know, through the uh, by the border. It's on the border. So depending on where you cross it, right? It'll it, the river can be angry at times. It can be calm. Um, I remember that it was a river. I remember it being somewhat calm, calm enough for us to be able to um, get or these kids to cross us, frankly. Um, but I've also heard and known of many stories, such as the one in the photo, where you know you're at the wrong place and the river will take you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't. I don't know if it was shallow. Um, I think it was. I don't think it was shallow because obviously they had to cross us. But I remember it not being as deep as other parts because these two young boys were able to do that. And these are these were kids that were trained already to do that. They knew exactly where to go. They knew what to do and how fast to do it. So you run to this pickup truck. You are reunited with your dad. Um, and what happens from there? So we were in Brownsville. Um, what month is this now? This is May. Okay, it's still May. Okay. This is still May um, because I remember I made it to this to San Jose May 26th so that was three days before my 12th birthday Mm. but we stayed in Brownsville for about a week and a half for us to sort of get acclimated a little bit you know it was my dad's friend's parents home I remember the first time I ever saw sliding open doors at a store. <laughs> oh, like, I was blown like away. Like the automatic doors. Yeah. Wait a minute. What the fuck is this? <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And the first time I saw a vacuum cleaner, oh my God, I was blown away by that. I was like, this thing cleans. <laughs> you know, we, my dad took us to, I think it was Walmart or something. I don't know if that existed back then, but bought us a bunch of bright clothes, summer clothes, you know, and um, waited there for about a week until it was ready. His friend was, um, his parents, like I said, were from Texas, so he knew how to come back. And the whole time we were told, once we get to the border of California, just pretend you're asleep because there was another stop. Um, I haven't traveled interstate in a long time, so I don't know if they do that or not anymore. But I remember that we were stopped by immigration and customs I, officers, I imagine, and my dad and his friend who spoke English perfectly well said some stuff to them, and we pretended to be asleep and made it to San Jose. Mm. And so you made it to San Jose via car? Yes. Like truck? Yeah, our dad picked us up in a van. They rented a van. So that even that is a journey from Texas to San Jose. That, so you, yeah. you're making it sound really easy. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, it, it's not. I mean, like I said, it really took us, if you think yeah. about it, we left Nicaragua December 27th or 29th, and I've literally made it to San Jose. And I remember, that's my my point of reference because I remember, you know, the day that I saw my mom again. And so it was five months from the time we left to the time we finally made it here and just is that uh five months all three journeys or is that uh, got it it's all three and so it's all three attempts yeah. and when your your mindset as a young per, you know as a child wanting to see your mother all you you know everything seems like a breeze once you're that's all you, know, you think about yeah everything's yeah, that's uh, all you think about seeing your parents again and so when i hear these stories about a you know of a company children um one of my cousins, two of my cousins recently, actually, not too recently, but they, they were accompanied children. You know, um, one of them was in, detained in Texas for a while. And this is when I say everything's perspective. And I feel so fortunate because we were away from my mom for only, you know, a year and a half. But this is a process. It's a process, you know, that takes years and years and years. So you have first the process of how do you get to the United States? And then you have the other aspect of once you're here, what does that mean? 
when people talk <clears throat> about papers, right, we're talking about immigration papers. You don't do that. I was undocumented all the way through college. Um, and, you know, that's a whole nother story. But I was able, my mom couldn't, we couldn't go back to Nicaragua. You have so many limitations. I couldn't travel abroad as a student. I couldn't get financial aid, you know, my last year of college. My mom couldn't go back to Nicaragua to see her mom who passed away. So there's all these other limitations that you have once you're here. It's a different struggle. So you, you're here in San Jose as a 12-year-old at that point? I turned 12 on my first birthday here. Yeah, so you're 12, you don't speak English. You, you start going to school that fall? Um, I didn't speak English, and the first word or the first sentence I learned to say was, I don't speak English. Uh-huh. <laughs> people were asking me <laughs> stuff, and I did not know what to say. I started seventh grade, yes. Um, I started seventh grade. My mom thought at the time it would be a good idea for me to go to a only English-speaking school. But it was too far, and then he, she put me in a bilingual school. Um, so I did seventh and eighth grade. And then I started high school. Obviously, I still have my accent, which is part of me, but I was able to pick it up fairly quick. And what was what were your life circumstances, living circumstances like at that time? I mean, oftentimes our our clients that come from abroad who have experienced maybe not to the same degree that of a journey that you did often are living kind of in the underbellies of of a city like San Jose, living in cramped residence and in densely populated neighborhoods. Was that what your life was like at that time? I think so. I think it's very similar. In fact, my mom still lives in the same Section 8 housing apartment complex where we grew up. You know, I grew up in the east side of San Jose. When you put it in perspective, though, when you come from Nicaragua where you have none of that and you're able to have a bedroom, even though you're sharing it, and you have a washer and a dryer that you walk to, not in the unit, but you're walking to, and you have a refrigerator, and you have all these things, even though you are in an area that is really, you know, not the best area of San Jose, those things seem like luxury Mm -hmm, to you, mm -hmm. right? Looking back, and especially now understanding our clients, and a lot of our clients are from the same place that I come from. Sadly, I've represented some of the clients that I've known growing up you know some of the kids from the same neighborhood overfell high school is where i went and that is a good high school now but it wasn't the best high school growing up there was a lot of crime um so to me yeah i i grew up in those same sort of circumstances i just think that i think i had a little bit of a drive you know and that i didn't want to stay there I wanted I saw my mom struggle to get us here and my mom always wanted something better for us and I wanted something better for myself so I think um going to school was a big motivator for me so, so you mentioned so uh, you mentioned going to middle school and then to Overfelt Wh- where's your head at in terms of where what you'd like to see from your your life and your career at that at that point in time so I was 14 when I decided I was going to be an attorney oh um, and I remember walking through the quad at my school, um, and I said, I want to be a lawyer. Like, I don't know why. If, I know why, but I remember that I wanted to be an attorney, and I set my mind to that. And I wanted to be an immigration attorney, quite frankly, because that's what, you know, my family was experiencing a lot of immigration issues, and, you know, you couldn't do a lot. And even then, I could still see my, my parents struggle, right? They can only get whatever types of jobs they can get, menial jobs, they're getting paid under the table, all of these things, right? All these limitations that you really have in front of you. And also we had an immigration attorney at the time that um, wasn't doing much for my mom and my, my dad. My mom was ordered deported to Nicaragua. She was denied asylum. 
we were under the application. My siblings and I were, were under my dad's application, thankfully, and his was taking longer. Um, so my mom was fighting her deportation proceedings. And so I became very frustrated. And then I became frustrated when I started learning about going to college. And um, there's all these requirements. And I felt that I wasn't going to be able to do that. And so I wanted to become an immigration attorney because to me that was the way I was going to help change, right? Much later I decided to become a criminal defense attorney, specifically a public defender for different reasons, but still tied to my family. So it it was a personal thing for me. And I felt that if I became an attorney, then I could help people. At the time of thinking about helping them with immigration, now I help them in a different way. It was a personal effect that it had on me to the point that I knew that that's what I needed to do. I have so many questions. There's more questions. So, and they're, they're going to jump around. So one question is, you know, you mentioned being from Nicaragua and I, I may, I'm guilty of making the assumption that when I meet a Spanish speaking person in the San Jose community or even a Spanish speaking client that they're from Mexico. Right. I think we all tend to just to make that overarching stereotype that if you're Spanish speaking and you're not from the United, you know, quote unquote, not from the United States, that you're from Mexico. Growing up in San Jose, was there, were you like a minority within a minority, being that you were from Nicaragua as opposed to maybe the many others that were actually from Mexico? Was that like a, a cultural barrier or obstacle that you had to deal with? To some extent, but not as much because I feel that it was easier for me to acclimate towards the Mexican culture. When it comes to our accent, believe it or not, they're very different. So a Mexican person will immediately look at me if I open my mouth and I speak like Nicaraguan and they'll ask me where you're from. Mm -hmm. But in terms of culture, right, and food, there's a lot of similarities too, but it's so much easier for this smaller group to acclimate towards the larger group and I have so much appreciation for obviously Mexican culture and I and I still do I still have to the intonation and the uh, way that you speak in Spanish I still have to modify it a little bit with my Mexican speak my Mexican clients you know because my Spanish is a little bit different not that they would not understand a word but it just makes it easier you know when you're speaking to them is that a frustration for you or is that a point of like tension of being lumped in in that way like uh, as as Mexican or is it something that you kind of take on as a point of pride or, or does, am, I, am I making sense no you're making sense um, I think at times it can be frustrating but I'm with you as far as you know it's not just you who does who clumps people into some sort of area I mean I do the same thing with other people from other parts of the world and I acknowledge that that is, that is part of my ignorance right but I want to learn and so I think I don't take it offensively anymore as I used to. I think I take it as an opportunity mm. to educate people. And I think people become interested once they learn that there are minor differences, but also substantial differences in people in general. And right. so I, I don't take it offensively. Yeah. Uh, and then the other question I had for you about your, your mom at that point when you're growing up in middle school and high school, what jobs were you seeing her doing like in San Jose? I'll tell you, she cleaned houses. I went to, and this is, I'll never forget, we went to clean some apartments at San Jose State, uh, for San Jose State students, and they were disgusting. (laughs) And I got paid 40 bucks that day, and I had to clean the bathrooms. And after that, I said, I'm never doing this shit again. (laughs) It was just... (laughs) And you Um, were in high school or middle school? I was in high school, and I also went with her when I was in middle school, but she cleaned houses, she worked for Pizza Hut, you know, she worked in the kitchen, she did... She worked at different electronics. Um, my dad was a mechanic also. They did whatever they could do. Yeah. You know, there was not one type of job that they adhered to. It was whatever was going to 
give right. me money. Right. I'm just going to, I mean, I, I don't, obviously we're kind of fast forwarding cause we're in a podcast setting, but I, I want to know more. So you go to Overfelt, you, you've already decided at age 14 that you want to become a lawyer. So let's just kind of forward to, you know, graduating from Overfelt. What, what's the kind of the next step for you from there? At this point, I've been in the States now five years or so, right? Five, maybe six years. Um, and I'm learning. You have to learn what do you do to go to college, right? My mom didn't know anything about that. Neither did my dad. Um, neither did many, none of my family, frankly. So I, I think I was just an inquisitive person overall. And I was literally at my counselor's um, office all the time to the one of the counselors that she was not even my counselor. Her name is Ms. Morales. And um, she was so helpful to me. She would tell me, you know, this is what you have to do. This is what you have to do. And I would ask her, what do I need to do to get into college? Um, I would drag my mom to school nights, you know, and to these FAFSA, you know, presentations, all these things, because mm-hmm. I was being guided by someone else. And my mom didn't know what we were doing, but she said, okay. So we go, we fill out the paperwork. Um, I think I just got fortunate to have the right people in my life at the time. I go to these different workshops and I, there was a person that used to come from UC Santa Cruz who helped me fill out the different applications for all the colleges. At the time, I also didn't know, I had, this is embarrassing, but I had no idea where Berkeley was. And so because I didn't know where Berkeley was, I said, I don't know where that is, so I'm not going to apply there. Mm. And I had been to LA, you know, so I said, oh, I know where Santa Barbara is. I'll, I'll apply here. And I, you know, at the time I was undocumented and I wanted to go to a UC because I had heard that UC was better than state. Not that it isn't. Mm-hmm. That is my, you know, 15 year old mind, 16 year old mind at the time. I also knew that I had to stay close to home because I didn't have documents. I didn't have papers. And so I opted to go to UC Santa Cruz where I could go to school and then come home and work on the weekends. And I was working at the flea market for two to three years while I was going to UC Santa Cruz. Wow, there's like stories upon stories in each of those chapters. So so you, what do you study at UC Santa Cruz? I study Latin American Latino studies because at the time I thought, I, you know, I want to be an immigration attorney. Um, and I was also, I wanted to keep up with my Spanish. And so I was doing literature as well in Spanish. Um, obviously, I took all the general ed courses and whatnot. And then you have the other thing, right? I didn't know about the LSAT. So <laughs> I finished college and I had no idea I was supposed to take the LSAT. So um, I, I, let me backtrack just a little bit. I can tell you that I went to UC Santa Cruz the first two years and I remember that they said, you can get financial aid. So I had in-state financial aid for those two years and I had some sort of scholarships. My, at the end of my second year, the financial aid advisor called me and said, I'm sorry to tell you, but we can't give you any more money. Um, and I had a major breakdown because I couldn't go to college anymore. And it had to do with a law that, and I think you guys may know this, but you know, not until recently, California again is allowed undocumented students to receive uh, financial in-state financial aid that was gone for a while. And so I, um, took a leave of absence from school. I worked and I had several jobs at the time. And then I went back the very last semester or what would have been my junior year, stayed with one of my roommate or with my roommate from first year. And I was crashing at her place, coming home on the weekends. And I just enrolled in 18 units. And then I went back my last year with my money that my mom gave me just for the tuition. Um, and I just packed on all the units so I could get out of there and get my degree. So you paid um, your own way? 
I pay my own way for the last year and a half because I didn't, I graduated in three years, right? Because I couldn't go the third year. But during that time, our um, paperwork with INS at the time was still pending. And so what I decided is I knew I was already 18 and I said, if I stay under my mom's or my dad's um, application, I'm never going to get anywhere. And there was this tiny little clause in the 1996, um, one of the 1996 Reform Acts that Bill Clinton passed. And that there was a clause that allowed Nicaraguans and Cubans and um, I think Salvadorians as well, that if you could prove you had been here uh, continuously for five years prior to 1995, you could apply for residency. And so I took advantage of that and I was, you know, I started my own paperwork and um, the very last week of my college year, senior year, um, I got approval for my green card. And so I ran back to my financial aid advisor who had told me, if you get your green card, we'll give you the money because it's here. We just can't give it to you. Wow. So I ran back to her and I was able to get, you know, my money. Back pay, <laughs> and I paid back pay. Back pay. <laughs> 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 yeah. So it was my last week of, of college that I got it. But I was... Man, so, so lucky. This is mm. all so surreal. So you were talking about wanting to be an immigration attorney and eventually, and the desire to help people. You Do you go straight to law school or do you take some time, uh, work, spend time with your family? I took time to s- learn and study for the LSAT. You know, I took four years between um, undergrad and law school. Uh, during my time in college, one of my brothers was diagnosed with leukemia. And so that was really difficult for our family. And so when I was studying for the LSAT, um, he was sick. And then when I got into law school, he was also sick. And I made the decision. I would have waited only three years between undergrad and law school. But then I deferred a year because I wanted to spend time with him. And this same brother is um, part of the reason why I'm doing criminal defense now. Unfortunately, my brother is deported to Nicaragua. You know, he, after his cancer diagnosis, he was 14 at the time. He started doing what I can imagine someone at that age will do, right? He started getting in trouble, sort of rebelling towards his illness and not knowing if he was going to be alive or not. He went to the ranch, um, escaped from the ranch, um, was getting in trouble here and there. Nothing major, but he was getting in trouble. And then at 18, he relapsed and the cancer came back very aggressively. And so he was at the hall when that happened and then went back to the hospital, came back home. And then at some point he was fine and then he got in trouble. And so we had hired an attorney who I'm not going to mention, but I know that that person is disbarred since. And, um, and mind you, I was in my very first year of law school at the time, um, first semester. So the police came to my mom's house. Uh, with a warrant because my brother was part of a group that was um, accused of this this 245, right? And um, I was told later by my mom, she called me, she didn't know what to do. So the police come, two of my brothers were there. My youngest brother was 11 at the time. And then, you know, they just do what sometimes the police do. They just go in, they don't show her anything. My mom doesn't know what's happening. They shove her out of the way. They push her, you know, they get my little brother and they put him into a van They um, uh, cite my other brothers or detaining them. All of these things are happening, and my mom didn't know what to do, and I didn't know what to do. 
And so um, that really enraged me when I learned that my little brother, the 11-year-old, was in a van with the police and he had no idea what was happening. Um, and then on top of that, my other brother, the one that's now deported, was being represented. And there was, what happened is with that representation, it was nothing was done, right? As, and I only learned that after I got my hands on the file, after becoming an attorney, right? Like nothing was done. My brother kept saying, I'm not going to plead, I'm not going to plead. And then, you know, we were faced with the, he's facing, you know, the exposure eight Mm -hmm. years. My mom freaks out. Um, And then he, they pled him out to um, a 245, a soft 245. But my brother hadn't been a resident for seven years yet. And so when there was a violation that triggered the deportation, which, you know, I tried to handle my, while I was with IDEO, um, but yeah, he, he was deported. And I think that that personal experience and seeing my cousin also having gone through the system, um, it drove me to becoming a defense attorney. And um, I made the personal decision that I knew there were other people and I knew other friends that were doing immigration work. So I felt we have more people like me doing that already. We need pe- more people like me doing this work. And at Perla, about this point, um when you're doing the work, when you're doing public defense and you're representing clients who have similar life stories to you, are there certain things that, uh, like lessons or um, ideas that organize your approach? I know what it looks like if they have to go back to a country, not personally, but through my brother. I know what it looks like to have to be separated again, you know, from your family. And so I tell them it's it's a difficult conversation to to have with them sometimes because even even as defense attorneys we limit it right how much can we get from the other side so that it's an immigration friendly consequence and then even if you get that immigration friendly consequence they're facing ICE right and they're facing these deportation proceedings that are not kind to people and so when I have these conversations with the clients I let them know you know sometimes and depending on the client that I understand because I know that a lot of times they also feel you don't understand but I do understand Um, and you try to help them as much as they can and we know that there's more we can do sometimes there's also some things there's nothing we can do you know beyond our abilities but yeah I, I don't know if I'm answering your question I try to keep it I think it's just mindful of it especially when they're Spanish speaking when I know they're not a citizen or a resident when we look at a f- case file, well, now like computerized case file or, or whatever, and we see, you know, born in Nicaragua or born in Honduras or born in Guatemala or born in Vietnam, that should, and I, I know I can only speak for myself for a long time, that didn't really trigger mm-hmm. many questions on my part. It was just, oh, okay, born in Vietnam, like, okay, moving on right. to the police report, moving on to what mm-hmm. the charges are. But that should be triggering of, right. okay what's this person's story and just like perla we we've we've talked now for an hour we could probably talk to you for hours on end about your story just as you have a story our clients have a story too yeah and their stories are probably laced with all kinds of micro and macro traumas that led them from especially from vietnam or from from nicaragua or mexico to be here and then to be in the criminal justice system being accused we're all we all handle felony cases being accused of a high level felony there, um, there's a story there that we need to unearth through the right questions, through yeah. curiosity, and then through investigation. And then we have to then turn that story and tell it. 
and tell it in a meaningful way to prosecutors, to judges, and essentially make them listen to it. Because I think for a long time, or for even to this day, um, those stories don't really have a legal place in this, you know, like have a, a foothold in the legal framework. So we have to make it matter. We have to ask those questions and we have to unearth the stories and again, the, the, the traumas. One, to, to show that there's, there's a trauma uh, background that may be uh, manifesting in the, in the crimes that our clients are accused of. And then two, to display the virtues that people are able to develop because of those stories. You talked about resilience. And so just like that, with our clients that have gone through the harrowing immigration stories, it's not just the trauma. The other side of that coin is resilience, hard work, generosity, family, sacrifice. And so even if we have clients that have been accused of serious crimes, we say they still have these amazing virtues right. that can, that make them worthy of another chance, uh, make them worthy of rehabilitation or another shot at redemption. Every person, if we look at, I mean, these clients have an unusual circumstance that justifies something extraordinary for them in their case yeah um, yeah no and even for me it's it is a reminder you know i have to remind myself too just because i'm now on sort of on the other side as far as citizenship doesn't mean that you know i can't empathize with the client and i have to remind myself sometimes like they're just like me and i'm just like them mm-hmm. and you know take their immigration story if you may and try to get them something a deal that is not going to jeopardize that because there, it's not just the liberty aspect anymore. You're also talking about their life here versus their life in a, you know in their home country. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna finish up, but I, one thing I was gonna say about your brother's situation. I mean, I, I'm assuming your brother was on this journey with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, how old was he when he got accused of this uh, felony assault? He was 19. So 19. Yeah. So we yeah. have this 19 year old young man. Let's say he ended ended up on one of our desks. Right. I would say early on in our career, you and I, and uh, we all started essentially the same time. We would be looking at that file. We again, I I would personally gloss over the where he was born. I would also probably gloss over how young he was, mm-hmm. and I would just look at the charge, the police report, the elements, the and then and then try to um, negotiate a favorable outcome for them: less jail time, lesser charge. Immigration wasn't even on our radar right. that much either. But now as we have these conversations and as our practice has matured and developed and as the as the community has developed, I would imagine we look at that file. We'd say, first of all, we have a 19 year old young person. So his brain is underdeveloped. We look at adolescent brain development, youthful offender. Then we ask the questions about his his story. Born in Nicaragua. Okay, tell me about that story. And then if we ask the right questions, he'd be telling us the same story that you did or we'd be talking to you. Mm-hmm. As an inve- you know, getting an investigator to right, talk to Perla. Yeah. Well, tell us about what your brother's story was. You were in a box in a bus, you know, like that's trauma that is going to manifest in some shape or form unless it's treated. Then you have this leukemia diagnosis. All of these layers that I, you mentioned, the attorney that was hired didn't do anything, but I, I can, they definitely didn't do that level of, right. of workup. And then the immigration friendly outcome. So it's like this whole, this, this this practice that we do when we zoom out and then we dig deeper would have looked so different for your, for your brother now than it did when, unfortunately, when he went through the, the, the process. But, you know, hopefully in telling your brother's story, we can save 
the next one of him from this uh, from the same um, and the and his family like yours from that same path. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's well, so much more to. There's more to talk we're about. Do like parts two and three. Yeah, this will be like a Ken Burns um, <laughs> multi. Perla Garcia. Um, Perla. Perla. Thank Who you. Who knew I was full of stories? I, oh. It's awesome. <laughs> I yeah. I've been like on the edge of my seat and like fighting back tears, oh. and it's just like it's yeah. it, it's, it's incredible. Oh, Absolutely. Thank you guys. Thanks I mean, we talk about this on the podcast. I mean, we have these beautiful conversations, and if no one else listened to it, I'm just so grateful yeah. that we had it like here yeah. the three of us and so but i'm hopeful that many many people will listen to it and uh well, it'll have an impact guys. thank you so much for listening uh, to eight or in a better everybody and we will talk to you next time <laughs>